Jesus, we ask that you would teach us from your word in these next few minutes and that you would help us be more like you and follow you better. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, I want to welcome those of you at home. Thank you for joining us as well as all of you. Thank you for being here. If you were to ask the question, what is the devil's number one strategy for messing up God's plans? I think you'd have to say the answer is division, discord, broken relationship. That is kind of the devil's go-to strategy for uh, trying to mess up what God is doing. And we see division and discord kind of everywhere, don't we? I mean, we see it in families, in churches, in offices, between friends, in schools, all kinds of places. I read a newspaper story from Kansas where police were called in to restore order at a retirement home whose staff apparently wasn't listening to the residents very well. This is what the article said. Three militant octogenarians. I love that phrase. Militant, you're never too old to be a militant, right? Three militant octogenarians were arrested after a fight. They were the leaders of an activist group that seized control of the facility and locked Norma Sutherland, one of the staff, in a closet. George Whitlock, 84-year-old spokesman for the activists, told reporters that the demonstration was to demand that they be given more of a role in management. This place is run by a bunch of young hoodlums, Whitlock said, waving his cane indignantly. But the manager of the home blamed the trouble on communication breakdown with the militants. Some of them just turn off their hearing aids when we try to explain policies. Mr. Whitlock responded, what's the sense of living as long as we have if some kid who's only 50 is going to tell you what to do? (laughs) Indeed. Division and discord till the day we die. And we especially see it in our country right now, don't we? We see a lot of division and discord in our politics, which we'll address in an upcoming sermon. But oh my goodness. Ick, right? And then the other place that we see a lot of discord right now is in racial relationships, a lot of racial tension. People of color feeling like white folks are denying the real issues they face and are feeling frustrated because that's what human beings do when they don't feel heard. And some white folks feeling blamed and shamed like they're being called racist and feeling defensive about that because that's what human beings do when they feel accused of things. And police officers feeling misunderstood and unsupported and unappreciated. We've been in a series called Resilient Pursuit. There's kind of two parts to that title. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how Jesus makes us unafraid and makes us resilient people so that we can do the second part of that title, which is to relentlessly pursue Jesus and his revival of all things. And reconciliation is a top priority for Jesus. In fact, you might even say it is the number one priority for Jesus. And the passage we read here talks specifically about racial reconciliation, but it also applies to reconciliation in families, in offices, between friends, in churches. And I think all of us probably have a relationship somewhere that needs just a little bit of reconciling, at least some. Right? And this passage gives us hope. And I know that the issue of race is a hot-button issue right now, and, and this passage uh, will, challenges us, and parts of this sermon may irritate some of you. It irritated me, and I wrote it, so feel free to be annoyed. But I would ask that all of us 
ask the Holy Spirit to help us hear past all the politics and just hear God's heart on this issue. And I'd also like to remind you that many of you liked last week's sermon, so if this one annoys you, just remember last week, all right? As a, as a nation, there's no question we have made a ton of progress on racial issues, tons of progress. And I see a lot of hope in our middle and high schoolers and young adults who are in many ways leading the way on this issue. But there is still work to be done. And I think we hunger for this, reconciliation in our personal lives, but also corporately as a nation. Would it not be good to finally heal the racial divisions that have plagued us since the very beginning? Wouldn't that feel good? And the Apostle Paul in this text says it's possible. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that just means non-Jews, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands. Let me just stop right there, okay? You'll notice uncircumcised is in quotes. And the reason for that is it's a derogatory term for Gentiles. In fact, you could even say it's kind of a racial slur. And Paul is very quick to point out that this is done by human hands. In other words, this racism here, this division, it's cultural, it's not of God. Remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he has made the two groups one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And the Greek there could also be translated hatred. And the wall he's referring to is probably a literal wall. There was a wall in the temple in Jerusalem meant to keep non-Jews out. And as Paul writes this letter, he is in prison in part because he took a non-Jew behind that wall into the temple. And that got him in trouble. And there's lots of reasons for the hatred between Gentiles and Jews. The Israelites saw Gentiles as unclean and morally corrupt and lascivious and sinful. In turn, Gentiles thought of Israelites as unsophisticated and kind of inferior. It was a nationalistic conflict because for centuries the Gentiles had conquered and oppressed the Jews, first Greece and then Rome. And on top of all of that, it's racial because the Gentiles Paul is referring to in this case are white people from Europe and Jews are Semitic people from Asia. Does any of this sound relevant? Like, too bad the Bible just doesn't speak to the problems we face today, right? And what's sad is that diversity is a gift from God. In the very first chapter in the Bible, God tells human beings to multiply and fill the entire planet. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that God knew that as human beings migrated all over the earth, that they'd encounter different growing conditions, which means that they would eat different foods and develop different cultures and different music and different art and all that, face different weather conditions that would even affect the color of their skin? Do you think God knew all that, or thousands of years later did he go, oh shoot, now they're not all the same, dang it. I wanted like matching sets. No, he did it on purpose, right? Because one race, one culture, one gender cannot express the fullness of God. Diversity is a gift to enrich our lives. I have gained a ton by being married to a Chinese woman. When we were dating, the first Thanksgiving I ever spent with her family, at one point Christina leaned over and said, did you ever imagine when you were growing up in eastern Washington that you would be having Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of people who spoke Chinese? And I said, no, I always kind of imagined it looking more like this. <laughs> right? 
Diversity, I've gained a ton by being married to her, by just experiencing a different culture. Diversity enriches our lives, but occasionally it can also put tension into our lives. So for instance, my wife and I sometimes have different parenting styles. <laughs> Is it just me? Or like, do you all face that, right? Only in our case, some of it's cultural. Because sometimes my wife will say, but that's not the Chinese way. And I'm like, but we're in America now. Right? Get with the program. Diversity makes life richer, but it can also bring conflict. But Jesus destroys every dividing wall of hatred and hostility. And this text shows us how. It says Jesus destroyed the dividing wall by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus got rid of God's moral law. Jesus says he didn't come to do that. What's meant here is kind of all the regulations, a lot of them human-made, that emerged around the law. And what Jesus ultimately got rid of was, was, was the comparison game that the law creates. I'm more moral. I obey the rules better than you. I'm better. You're inferior. I'm superior. Jesus kills the comparison game. Right before this, the, these verses, the Apostle Paul says this, It is by grace that you have been saved, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. As I've said many times, I got stuff, you got stuff, all God's children got stuff. And church is the place where God's stuffy people come to get unstuffed. And the fact that we all got our stuff means that, the, that we are all on a level playing field. No one is better than anyone else. And the cross is all about reconciliation. The vertical beam reminding us that Jesus reconciles us to God, while at the same time the horizontal beam reminding us that he also reconciles us to each other. Reconciliation is the very heart of Jesus, the very heart of God. And he hates racism. The Bible says we are all of us, every race created in God's image. Moses, a Jew who delivered the Jews from slavery, married a black woman. God not only approved of it, he punished those who didn't like it. The church itself starts on the day of Pentecost when many different races were gathered together in Jerusalem for that holiday. And they formed the first church ever. Interracial relationships are so important to God that he did not start the church until there was a day when every race was there in Jerusalem and could form the first church together. Jesus reconciles us by killing the comparison game. The other way he reconciles us is he gives us a new identity. Paul says that Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In other words, a new kind of human being, one in Christ. It's a new identity. I am Christian first, white second. I am Christian first, college educated second. I am Christian first, American second. There's a higher identity because Jesus gets at something much more fundamental than all of those other categories. He heals my heart, which is more core to me than race or, or education or nationality or any of those things. And I've experienced this with some of the African-American Christians I know. There's a way that we can talk through even difficult issues of race better because of our shared identity in Christ that is deeper than the color of our skin. And this is a non-negotiable for anyone who follows Jesus, right? This is not a gray area in the Bible. This is a non-negotiable. And the reason we seek racial healing is not because it's politically correct or because it's fashionable these days. No, no, no. The reason we reconcile with anyone, but particularly racially, there's a couple of reasons. First, God commands it. 
Let's stand for the benediction. Right? Like that should be enough, right? Like that should be the end of the sermon right there. And some of you are like, oh, I wish it was the end of the sermon, right? <laughs> but we usually need a little bit more. So second, we're all going to be in heaven together anyway. Might as well practice now. All those different foods, all the different music, all those different cultures. To me, it sounds like a hootenanny. That just sounds awesome, right? Which is the third reason diversity makes life way more interesting. And finally, it is one of the best ways to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is Lord. Today's text says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and also members of God's household. See, there's a movement here from foreigners to family. Built on the foundation of the apostles, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, when we reconcile, we become a temple where God's spirit dwells. And the world will see that Jesus is Lord when people who can't get along in the world start loving each other in the name of Jesus. I read an interview with an African-American pastor who had one of the first multiracial churches in the Deep South uh, just, just before the Civil Rights Movement. And the interviewer asked him, how did your church become multi-ethnic? Was it the Supreme Court? And the pastor said, Supreme Court? Why would Christians need a Supreme Court to tell them that black and white folk ought to be together? Good question, right? So the interviewer said, well, then how did it happen? And the preacher said, well, when the old preacher died, they couldn't find anyone else to fill the role, so I told the deacons that I'd preach. And they said, okay. Well, I got up the next Sunday, and I opened the Bible to the place in the Bible where it says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Jesus. So I preached on how Jesus makes all kinds of people one. And when I finished, the deacons told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preaching no more. The interviewer said, well, what did you do? And the pastor said, I fired them deacons. <laughs> if, a if a deacon ain't going to deke, he ought to be fired. Well, the interviewer said, well, why didn't they fire you? He said, they couldn't. They didn't hire me. They couldn't fire me. And he said, once I found what bothered those people, I gave it to them week after week. I stuck the knife in the same place every Sunday. I love that. And the interviewer said, and they put up with it? And he said, nope, they all left the church. I preached that church down to four people. <laughs> See, sometimes revival happens when people leave the church, not when they come in. Then we decided, the five of us that were left, that we were going to build a church of people who were serious about following Jesus, and that's when it started to grow. It grew because there's something so powerful when people see Jesus uniting what the world divides. And guys, this should be our specialty the first multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic community in all of human history was the early church. This is not some politically correct, fashionable thing for the 21st century. This is what Jesus has always been about, and this is what his church has always been doing at our best for 2,000 years. It was Christians like William Wilberforce and Harriet Beecher Stowe who led the abolition movement. And you cannot separate Dr. King's vision of racial reconciliation from his deep faith in Jesus. This is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. And this is what his church specializes in. And Bell Press, this is how we bring hope to the world. It shouldn't be left up to the politicians. Yes, they're a part of that. But Jesus did not give the job of reconciliation to a government. He gave it to his church. 
You can say amen to that. That's good news. It's good news. So how do we do it? Practically, how do we do it? Like, so practically, what do we do? We're, some steps. I'm going to list a bunch of stuff. You just ask the Holy Spirit to show you your homework for this week, okay? First, draw close to Jesus. Do what he tells us to do. Just obey him. Like, if, if everyone in the world just did what Jesus said to do, things would be perfect, right? Like, there, I just gave you the formula for world peace right there. I'm taking the rest of the week off. See, it's kind of like this. Let's say you and I, we're at opposite ends of something. We're not aligned. We're, there's no reconciliation. But as we draw closer to Jesus, what happens? As we both get closer to Jesus and obey him more, we also get closer to each other, right? Draw close to Jesus. Second, pray. Ask God to help you see the issue the way he sees it. How does he see this racial issue? Pray for the elders, staff, and justice team of this church as we discern how God might be leading us to be part of racial healing in our culture. Third, practice some small steps. Just get to know people of a different race or age at work, at school, in your neighborhood. Just get to know them. And here's a hint. Your first question to them should not be, so what do you think of Black Lives Matter? Okay, start with the Seahawks. Okay, I'd say the Mariners, but that might cause discord. So, you know, go Hawks, right? Volunteer in programs at Jubilee Reach or Eastside Academy or Kid Reach that will introduce you to people of different races and different ages. Read about black, Latino, Native American, Asian history and their contributions that they have made to this country. The first open heart surgery was done by a black man. The only artistic genre that was invented exclusively in America is jazz. African Americans did that. Native Americans helped the first European settlers survive and thrive, which they later paid for because we kind of took over. Latinos have done Nobel Prize winning work on subatomic particles. Asian Americans like Yo-Yo Ma and Vera Wang are redefining music and fashion. Just practice some small steps. Get to know other races and their history. Fourth, listen to understand. Remember this, contact reduces conflict. The more I understand your story and vice versa, the less conflict we're likely to have. Contact reverse, uh, uh, reduces conflict. So as you read articles or talk to people of different races or see news stories, throw away your politics and pray this prayer. Jesus, when it comes to racial issues, is there anything in this article, news story, sermon that you want to teach me? Anything, Jesus, you want to convict me of? Jesus, help me see this from the other person's point of view. And what's sad is, as I have asked some Christians to pray that prayer around racial issues, many of them, have, they won't agree to do it. They won't agree to do it. They just keep arguing their side. Those people, but if only those people, and they're the problem, and them, and they, and they question, how's that working for us right now in America? Is there any evidence that it's actually helping us? How about we try it Jesus' way? So if right now you're thinking about, you're sitting there thinking about the other side of you politically or racially or even your spouse and you're thinking, man, I hope they hear this sermon. They really need to listen to my side. Well, there you go again. There you go again. And I'm in it with you guys. I'm in it too. I can get angry. I can get defensive sometimes around this issue. But I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't want us to camp there. Listen to understand, not refute because when folks feel heard, they tend to stop fighting. 
Let me give you an example. For instance, say my wife and I get in an argument about how much I work or how much I complain when work gets hard. Now, if we both defend our positions, what happens in that argument? If, for instance, I say, look, I have to work this hard to provide for our family, and I'm not complaining, I'm sharing my heart. Right? Now, now, what happens in that moment, right? In her mind, she starts lining her arguments up like jets over SeaTac, just waiting for me to take a breath, and then because she's smarter than me, fire her rebuttals at me and demolish my entire argument. Right? And by the way, you do know that this is a hypothetical conversation. <laughs> right? Like any resemblance to real people or pastors living in Bellevue, purely coincidence. But if instead I say, honey, always a good place to start, right? When I'm working, that neglects you and our family. When I complain a lot, that's, uh, what's the word, um, toxic? Now what does she say? Darn right, you idiot. Glad you're seeing it my way. Of course not. She goes, I get it. I understand. Let's work on this together. When people feel heard, they fight less. The Bible says, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Two ears, one mouth, there's a ratio, that's a hint. So as I have talked with people of color that I know and have heard their fears that because of the shootings of unarmed black men, they say, I am just afraid when I say goodbye to my teenage son every day, it might be the last time I see him because he might get shot in a traffic stop. But then to also hear family members of police officers say the exact same thing. When I say goodbye in the morning, it might be the last time. They might get shot in a traffic stop. Same fears. Do you hear that common ground? Do you know what that common ground is called? Hope. Which brings me to the next suggestion. Admit and lament the other person's pain. When we feel heard, we tend to stop fighting. So for me as a white man, that means that I have to be open to evidence that there are cultural and systemic forces that work against people of color even still. And that I'm not likely to notice them because I don't experience them as white. Admit and lament means I'll listen to the pain and support the vast majority of police officers, the overwhelming majority of police officers who do their job justly and fairly and bravely while simultaneously listening to the pain of my friends of color over the fact that at least in some instances, racial stereotypes and images and fears we get from our culture contribute to someone's perception of threat, and that affects how they treat people of color. And I will do both of those things simultaneously because they are not mutually exclusive. I'll listen to data from all sides, not just the news source that backs my politics. A well-known politician recently said this, it took me a long time and a number of people talking to me through the years to understand that if you're a white American, you don't understand being black in America. And you, you underestimate the level of discrimination and additional risk if you're black. You know who said that? Newt Gingrich, former Republican Speaker of the House. You know, that left-wing radical guy. My parents know an African-American man who works in a pizza parlor. And one night, some cash went missing, and the police investigation found no evidence that could point to anyone, no evidence at all of who took the cash, no clues at all. But guess who got fired anyway? The black man. Okay, guys, that was recently here in the Northwest. For so many people of color, just to hear white people say, yes, this is real, at least in some occasions, this is really happening. It's just so healing. 
And yes, people of color need to listen to white folks too. Yes, yes, yes. But white folks are still the majority in this country, which means we have more power. And Scripture always calls those with the most power to sacrifice first and to sacrifice most, just as Jesus, who had all the power, sacrificed for us. And these conversations, guys, they get messy, they get angry, they get difficult. But if you focus on Jesus and stick with it, we can get to healing. And then as a white person, I would ask people of color to help me understand and to do your best to talk to me in a way that doesn't blame, shame, and accuse. And then one last step, advocate. Okay, let's hold politicians on both sides, on both sides accountable to healing rather than exploiting racial division. And if you see an injustice, say something. Researcher Dr. Joy Degree, who is, who is black, tells a story of going to the grocery store with her sister-in-law, Kathleen, who is white. And at the checkout counter, Kathleen, who's white, the, the cashier talked to her, was really warm, super friendly to Kathleen. Kathleen wrote a check, then stepped aside to wait for Joy to check out. Well, the cashier didn't talk to Joy at all. And Joy's 10-year-old daughter kind of noticed the difference. And Joy wrote a check, and then the cashier said, I need two pieces of ID. Okay, didn't do that with Kathleen, who was white. At which point, Joy's 10-year-old daughter got embarrassed and tears welled up in her eyes. And Joy thought, should I say something? And then she thought, no, because if I say anything, then I'm the angry black woman. So she just gave the cashier the two pieces of ID. But then the cashier pulled out the list of people who have written bad checks and starts looking through it for Joy's name. At which point, Joy's sister-in-law, who's white, walks back and says, you know, why are you doing this? And the cashier said, it's our policy. And Kathleen said, no, it's not. You didn't do that for me. And the cashier said, well, I know you. I don't know her. And Kathleen said, no, you don't know me. I just moved here. She's lived here for years and has been coming to this grocery store all along. At which point, two white elderly ladies in line behind them started to say to each other, do you see what they're doing to this woman? Do you, why are they, do you see what's happening here? And then the manager came over and said, is there a problem? And Kathleen said, yes, and explained. Joy says, because Kathleen stepped in, she influenced everyone in that space to see what they might not have otherwise seen, including the cashier, who almost certainly does not want to be racist, but may be blind to the ways that racial, racial st stereotypes subconsciously affect her. And Joy says, I can't know for sure if I had said it, if it would have had the same effect, but it seems like it might, wouldn't have. So Kathleen used her whiteness to educate people. And Joy says, that's something you can do every day. And yes, of course, it can go the other way around too. There have been times, particularly in interracial settings, where people of color have helped me to be included and not be seen as an outsider. See, guys, the devil thrives on conflict and disunity and discord. He feeds off of it. So he whispers in our ear, better be afraid, better be angry, better keep separate, right? He is pulling the strings and we are his puppets dancing to his tune. Don't let him play you like that. Deny Satan the victory. Say, you don't get this victory, Satan. You don't get this victory in my family. You don't get this in my church. You don't get this victory in my office, in my neighborhood, in my school. You don't get this victory in my country, Satan. You don't win this one. Jesus does. Let me close with this. Last, sub last summer, after five cops were shot in Dallas and killed, uh, one, uh, two groups of protesters one day ended up, kind of one was from Black Lives Matter and the other group was in support of the police. These two different protest groups ended up on the same corner one day. Here's what happened. Two black, two strong. Two black, two strong. Two black, two strong.
That's what we're going. And kudos to CNN for including the prayer. Because you get the sense that Jesus was a big part. I mean, it's Dallas, right? Lots of people know Jesus there. And kudos to CNN for including that. I love that line. This is how you tear down a wall. This is how you tear down a wall. The early church was the first group in history to do racial reconciliation. Jesus invented this thing, guys. And we've got 2,000 years of experience to draw on. And Jesus calls us to bring heaven down to earth, and that means reconciliation. And Bell Press, I know you want to do this. This is hard. This requires sacrifice. It can get tense. It can get uncomfortable. But I know your heart, Bell Press. I know that you want to follow Jesus and do what he says to do and heal our culture. And our country needs us right now, Bell Press. And we have the secret sauce. His name is Jesus, and he tears down every wall and brings reconciliation in our offices, schools, into our cities. Maybe even start a movement that can heal a county, a state, a nation. Jesus says to us, people of God, tear down this wall. Until, as the prophet Isaiah says, the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, thank you that you tear down every dividing wall of hatred. And Lord, as you did 2,000 years ago, as you have been doing all along, help us to be people of peace, people who bring reconciliation, people who are quick to listen and slow to talk, and people who bring others together in your name. Amen. Amen. 